we had a conversation about business and about sales and about training and about selecting. He said, yeah, well, they start with the DISC model and they assess and then he runs the training program. He's the top sales guy and he's been chartered to actually train uh, the new salespeople that come on board. And he's even been you know, involved in putting together a selection process. And this is just a local small doors and windows company that is scientific about the way they select. And of course they're doing it in a cost-effective way. And so I would say, select for the attributes and then put together a training plan. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our mini-series, Special Operations Lessons for Business, with Al Buford. He's a 20-year veteran from Army Rangers, 75th Regiment, at Army Special Mission Unit, has gone on to become a highly successful businessman, including at uh, Patriot Group, closing in on looking like they're going to hit $100 million in revenue this year. Al, for, for part two here, I think that maybe the next question that I would have is, what's another one of the most important principles of any kind, really? when it comes to building a $100 million a year business that you don't see other people doing or that you think the rest of us you know, might be holding us back from achieving that level? Well, Jess, I think fit is, is critical. Attracting and retaining the right people for each individual role. The special operations organizations, the Ranger Regiment, all they spend a lot of time thinking about and, and, and developing their processes for fit. You want to get exactly the right person on the team for each individual role. And I think something that happens quite often, especially in younger companies uh, or in hiring individual hiring managers within departments uh, of even bigger companies, they do something called the similar to me hiring bias. And that's something I learned about in organization development at my master's program. It's it's, it's an HR term. And the idea is, well, if, 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 People with, if I'm awesome, then anybody I hire who has my same background is also going to be awesome. And then we're all going to be awesome together. And if we build a whole organization of awesome people just like me, then we're just going to be awesome. The problem with that is, is that organizations ha- have needs for a wide variety of different talents and skill sets and personal attributes. And so, for example, you know, recruiting and screening and hiring and all those things, military folks, if you've had some experience with that, you, you can do quite well but you might not be a good CFO, right? So you don't want to hire another guy just like you to be the CFO. And you don't want to hire another person just like you to be the contracts manager, because that's that's almost like being a lawyer. I mean, you got to have somebody specifically with that background in contracts management and all the right certifications on the government side. Even pricing, pricing for a government contract is a really complex exercise because of all of the regulations involved. And so you want to hire someone for that or a consultant for that who is an absolute expert. And they may be very, very different than, you know, my own awesomeness or my business partner's awesomeness. You know, you, you're looking for a fit for that role. And so that that's part of it. Another thing I want to talk about is attributes versus technical skills. So so as you're looking to fill a role, you know, you want to do what does the business require? Well, it generally is going to require something different than what you already have on staff. You know, if you're trying to fill you're looking for the gap that you need filling, you know. And so 
most people will write a job description and they'll say, okay, well, what does this role require? Well, it requires a person who knows how to do X, Y, and Z in terms of technical skills. And so then they scan through a million resumes to try to find somebody with those technical skills, or, you know, they hire somebody who knows somebody who has those technical skills, but the focus on attributes is often overlooked. And so I try to, to, to emphasize everyone here putting attributes into that equation. And so I'll give you an example. Salespeople, really good salespeople who last in, for, for a lifetime in sales and they're comfortable with it and they like it. They, the attributes are typically, they are assertive. They have, they're extroverted. They have high verbal skills. And so that kind of person is going to be comfortable being out there talking and pushing and, and you know, having all those long conversations with customers and, 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 and taking no and not getting wounded about it, you know. And so, but a person who's a great software engineer Oh, and high energy also for the for the sales. A software engineer might be low energy, high math skills, introverted, and that person can sit at that screen for hours and hours and hours and days and type the ones and zeros and make, make it into magic and have it do something. But if you take your best software engineer who's been doing that for years and you make them your top salesperson because your salesperson left, well, they may act extroverted and they may act high energy for a little while, but they can't, it's not who they are and they won't last, right? So attributes are critical when you're trying to fill uh, various roles. And so think about the role. Is it internal facing? Is it external facing? Does it require low energy or high energy? Is it math skills? Is it verbal? Introverted, extroverted, think about all those things because you just can't teach somebody an attribute. It's already who they are. And then you help bolster the technical skills. You know, our our friend in common, Peter, I feel like this is something I've learned from him as well. And, you know, in in the business literature these days, there's a lot about being nice to everyone and being tolerant of everything and being inclusive and everything and and principles that can be great principles, but any virtue taken to it to an excess can be a vice kind of a thing, you know? And I think like there's something appealing about, you know, the organization that can take anyone and become successful with them, or, you know, they'll find a place for everyone. And, and it's very, very much about take care of the staff. Like we were talking about Richard Branson, take care of your staff and they'll take care of your customers. Right. But I've also seen it stray into kind of like delusion into some self-deception about under the guise of being nice, I'm not being honest about this person's fit for a role, you know, and maybe like a lack of courage of doing something about it because it's going to be uncomfortable to say, hey, this isn't really working, is it? It's like, you know, there's this joke about one farmer goes over to his old farmer buddy's house and there's a hound dog laying on the porch whining. And he's like, man, what's wrong with your dog? And he says, Oh, he's uh, laying on a nail. And he's like, what? Why doesn't he get up? And the guy's like, well, it doesn't hurt that bad, you know? <laughs> and, and I see that so often. And, and yet I look at your community and you guys are, I feel like it's almost like a mission success thing. And I want you to correct me if you see it different, but it's like the mission is so important that we can't afford to delude ourselves about this person not being a fit and we'll just fudge it and we'll just make up for it. Like, I feel like the special mission unit community is like, they're so intent on mission success that, that they, you know, they, I don't know, they're just willing to consider selection at such a higher level than I see elsewhere. I don't know. Can you weigh in on that or tell me how you see it different? Well, yeah, I think things that we, 
things that I think are important, for example, with bringing somebody into a young growing company, person who has high growth needs is going and is an active learner. Those are, I, I think that person in a young growing company is going to be a much better contributor, but, you know, assuming that they're respected and, and you're sharing the rewards and you're rewarding people proportional to their effort and their contributions and their results. I think that's fair. Fair isn't giving everybody the same bonus. Fair is rewarding in proportion to contribution. That's fair. There's a book called First Break All the Rules, and it's, it's, it goes into detail about that. It, it's it's a, probably a 20-year-old business book. But I think that hunger and uh, maybe some scar tissue, you know, people who have had endured some hardship, they're not going to buckle at the first sign of pain, you know, in uh, in a project that they're working on. You know, I'll give you an example. On the security side of things, rangers, marines, infantry guys, they're not used to being spoiled. You know, they're not used to extravagant budgets and they're not used to snapping their fingers and having some piece of gear appear on the front in front of their team room door the next day. And people in some of the other special operations units, you know, they, they are well-resourced in that way. And some of them can get very accustomed to that. And then you get into a business environment where you don't have the same level of resources and things are bid competitively and you get what you get because this is how it was bid and you need to make that work. Well, I've found that infantry folks, rangers and Marines, man, they've got a mindset that they're used to discomfort. They're used to working hard. They're used to dealing with limited resources. And uh, it often works out very well in a, in a government contracting environment. And the, especially if they've worked at another company before and maybe been treated poorly for a while, to take somebody specifically out of a, a special unit with a great budget and right into a, a resource-constrained environment, it's, it's a painful adaptation for them. And so, and it's a kind of, kind of a process for them to, to sort of adjust to uh, life after, you know, life after being in one of those kind of organizations, because it's just not a real common thing in the world, you know, unless you're Richard Branson and you have all those resources or Bill Gates, you know? Yeah. Well, can you talk about this idea from from your guys' unit about it's not necessarily the best guy, it's the right guy. Can you talk about that concept? Yeah. So can they do the job? Will they do the job? And can they fit in with the team? Uh, you know, that's that's kind of what they're trying to determine with all of those really, really sophisticated processes. And, uh, you know, for example, you, you might think that an IQ that is just off the charts would be something that you would want to get as much of as you can. But certainly you want a certain level of, you know, aptitude, you know, or intelligence, right? You, you want to have a certain level of, of intelligence, but you mix in a handful of PhD level brainiacs, the ability to fit in and speak, you know, normal English and have the social skills that, the, you know, the average person on a team would have, sometimes that's lacking with an Albert Einstein, you know? And so oftentimes people who are off the charts, crazy smart, they actually excel when they're out there resourced to develop and create almost uh, on an individual, like how you might imagine a scientist, you know, doing experiments in a lab or something. They aren't necessarily the best people to be a part of a team, you know, of, of gun-toting stallions, you know. <laughs> so that's an example, you know, and it's kind of counterintuitive. You would think that you wanted as much brainiac power as you can. And certainly there's a lot of really, really smart, sharp people who are just active learners, think on the fly, can adapt to the situation. But so that's an example of the right person, you know, uh, in terms of fit. You know, my I guess my next question, I've got I've got two more questions here. The first one is, you know, 
mentally this idea of not settling, you know, like you're in need, the company's growing, you know, like our real estate investment fund, right? We're, we're in this massive ramp up phase where we're just about hitting. And like when you've got needs, it's like there's such a temptation to take the next warm body that seems good enough, right? And it takes restraint and discipline not to take someone who seems pretty good. And I, I guess we'll find out, but to like have the discipline to wait, like to, to keep having too much work on your plate while you're selecting the ideal individual. And, and obviously perfectionism could be a problem if you go too far the other direction. Right. But do you have any advice or any recommendation for like somebody like us, who's, you know, rapidly growing, but has this temptation to, to maybe not be quite as disciplined in selection because we want the help now. Well, I think everyone, everyone is subject to the laws of supply and demand, no matter what you're dealing with in business. And so I would say that if an organization finds themselves in a situation where they're having to kind of cope with the supply and demand that's available at the moment, they need to kind of have a trigger point in their, in their equation, whereby at some point they come back and correct that issue. So where, you know, if you have 20 people on a contract that you just took over and a handful of them aren't, aren't are causing problems, aren't quite working out, aren't quite getting the job done, but they're irreplaceable because of their clearance level or the training course that they went through that you can't get. Well, it's kind of an impossible problem to fix right now, but that doesn't mean you can't fix it four months from now or six months from now. And you just have to keep it on your plate of things to do. And, uh, you know, it's just a matter of timing that you might be able to come back and correct that issue. And you just have to sort of wait for supply and demand, or you have to create the supply to fix that issue. We've done that at times in various creative ways. Uh, we have adapted to supply and demand problems and, uh, and and fixed it over time. That's that's actually really helpful. Yeah, it makes me feel like being in less of a rock and hard place. You know, I guess I guess my next question is, and it's fine if you if you don't want to share this number, but if you're comfortable sharing it, about how many folks do you have out there on these contracts working for Patriot Group? It varies. I would say I'll just say roughly two fifty. So as I think, you know, part of our Greystoke, one of the things we're looking to do is have licensed sales reps in states all across the U.S., right? So, you know, if we, if we ever get to the point where we've got 10 in every state, that's 500, that's 500 of these folks, you know what I mean? Like that's a big national sales force. And of course you wish every one of them was like special mission unit level <laughs> quality folks, right? And my next question is, what about selection at scale? You know, in our case, there's a little bit lower financial concern because it's a commission-only type of position, right? And at the same time, there's the team dynamics and there's the there's their representing your organization dynamics. And so there may not be like as much of the financial concern because the sink or swim is a little bit more on them, right? But from a reputation, from a, you know, are they bringing the team up? Are they bringing the team down? We want rapid growth, so there's that temptation to take anybody who's good enough that can get their Series 63 license and these things, right, to become an issuer rep. So I guess just any any advice or any thoughts in general about selection at scale? Well, I would say that taking advantage of, you know, looking at what we're doing right now, you know, working remotely, come up with some online ways to assess attributes that we talked about. So if you're looking at selling, 
you know, you want people who are high energy, high verbal, assertive, and extroverted. Well, there's probably 50 tools out there that help you determine uh, the extent to which somebody is there. And so, in fact, I, I talked to a guy recently who does doors and windows, and he's the top sales guy at this local company here. And he's, he, we had a conversation about business and about sales and about training and about selecting. He said, yeah, well, they start with the DISC model and they assess, and then he runs the training program. He's the top sales guy, and he's been chartered to actually train uh, the new salespeople that come on board. And he's even been you know, involved in putting together a selection process. And this is just a local small doors and windows company that is scientific about the way they select. And of course, they're doing it in a cost-effective way. And so I would say select for the attributes and then put together a training pipeline for the kind of product you're selling. And if it's transactional, you know, a short sales cycle, one decision maker, two decision makers, something like that, it's more of a Grant Cardone kind of a training pipeline of teaching them how to you know, how to ask the right questions and, uh, you know, how to close a deal with an individual. If it's a more complex sale where you've got a source selection committee and all that sort of thing, then you're going to go with that's a different kind of a training, more of a Mahan Khalsa, let's get real or let's not play kind of a process. Uh, those are books. And so, yeah, that's the way I, that's the way I would do it. You know, I, I think about another, another thing that, you know, maybe isn't, I think about all the different organizations I've, you know, our consulting firm has done training for across the Department of Defense in the past. And I think something else that's more unique to the kind of that classified level unit is, is this idea of selection is an ongoing process, you know, like, you know, it's, it's not this, like you pass the test once and you're, you've got your tenured university <laughs> professor, right? I see so, that all the time. I say that all the time. So my question for you is, and, and about how many countries do you guys have people out in doing these contracts? Well, I, I think one of our marketing things over the past couple of years, I think we've hit about 20 or more over the past, you know, five years or so. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think about, you know, you've got a couple hundred guys spread across the world in some pretty, you know, dangerous, you know, potentially high risk situations, some cases and, and, and different, you know, challenges and dealing with government bureaucracies of the clients that they're protecting or, you know, serving, right? And the, there's, there's a lot of opportunity for friction between the humans and, and, you know, you can't exactly like, you're not going to be in for the Monday morning meeting when you're in some other places. Right. So I guess my question is thinking about selection as an ongoing process for folks that you're not going to physically see, you know, like a, you've got a large force and B, you don't have the physical proximity. So anything about like somebody who was great, but it seems to be falling off the wagon and you know, making decisions about how much remediation do you do versus how do you make the call when it's time to make a change or just, and I guess anything you've got to say about selection is an ongoing process for a large group geographically dispersed. Yeah. Well, we do surveys. Of course, there's incident reporting, you know, that's a part of our process where if something happens, you know, there's a reporting process with the chain of command, but we have we do surveys as well, very regularly. We do leader surveys, for example, climate surveys to determine, you know, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? What needs to get fixed? You know, we've got a leader selection process. Is that producing what we want? We've got a leader training process. Is that producing what we want? And every week when I give briefings to uh, some of our folks, one of the things I talk about is that exact phrase, selection is an ongoing process, and, and it includes me. 
if I were to all of a sudden start being condescending or abrasive to all of our people, my business partners would hold me accountable for that. And if they could not correct that behavior within me, they would have a board meeting and they would vote me off the island. And I know that. And it's it's the same for all of us. And so they understand that if they get the chance for a leadership position, there's no made man in the mafia. This isn't Goodfellas. You know, it's selection is an ongoing process and we earn our place in the team and in our leadership roles every day. And so by by setting that tone from the owners of, the, of our business, you know, nobody's going to take my stock away from me, but they can certainly take my leadership position away from me if I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing with respect to everything we agreed to mission focus and respecting everyone on our team, you know, and, and everyone around us and our customers respect everyone. We had someone who was in a back office job, uh, fairly senior level and uh, had some issues uh, with certain categories of people in the workplace. And uh, so that, that was a, that was a, that was an event where that person was terminated because they couldn't be respectful to their coworkers universally across the board, respect everyone just couldn't do that. It wasn't, it wasn't a part of who they were. And so we gave them the opportunity to excel elsewhere. So diplomatic of you. <laughs> yeah. I like that description. Well, this has been great. Everybody, please tune back in for, for part three of our mini series on special operations lessons for business with Al Buford. Thanks everyone.